So let's read that first. And then I've got like a nine-page sermon, but I'm going to try to make it mercifully short, given that um, my sister-in-law has two children, three and under, um, here, and I don't want to pay for this the rest of the day. So <laughs> that's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. My wife would be much meaner. Um, that's a joke, too. That's actually a joke, too. Sorry. Just assume if it's not about Jesus, it's a joke. Okay. Um, Acts 19, verses 1 to 10, and then 18 to 20 say this. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now look at verse 18. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. While they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. I'm trying to think of a way to dramatically shorten this. That's why, that's why the dramatic pause. Um, there are, there are basically two reasons people get on about spirituality, right? One is to make our own lives better, right? That would be one reason. Um, what can, you know, what, can we gain some kind of insight or wisdom or direction or encouragement or spiritual power or something so that our lives will be better, right? And that's, that's not an illegitimate idea. I mean, the Bible is full of talk about God liking it when we come to him like a kid would come to his dad and, and ask to be blessed, right? So it's not, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's just, it's just deficient by itself is the issue, right? Because any dad would get a little put out if a kid just kept coming for stuff and it was very evident that he didn't care about the dad, right? This is one of the things that actually um, has not been fulfilling about dog ownership for me. I don't know if you've experienced this too, but for my whole life, I waited till I could like get my own dog, and I, I was going to get a husky, and all this. So I get myself a husky. It was a beautiful, wonderful dog. Everybody who has ever been to my house loves my dog, right? And um, he doesn't care about me. <laughs> he doesn't. If, if I have bacon grease on my hands, I am his favorite person in the world. But if, it, if it's just me, and he doesn't need to be scratched, itched, fed, watered, let out, played with, whatever, he doesn't care. And, and a lot of people, they don't, what they don't realize is the reason why their dog— is always about them, and they think that they're constantly It's just because they want to be played with. Dogs just want to be played with every second of the day. And so everybody thinks, oh, dogs just, they just love us. No, they don't. They want you to play with them. That's it. And so I was, it's been very unfulfilling. I thought, oh, I thought at least one, it's, it's great because pastors ought to have one person in the world that just loves them. Okay? And so I thought my husky would be that one person. It's apparently going to have to be my wife, baby. I'm sorry. Um, but 
and, and so you can imagine, like, as an owner, I'm like, oh, I want to start. And, but you can understand how a father could get a little put out if year after year after year his kid just came and was just like, what can you give me? Right? At some point, there's a spiritual transition that needs to happen where you start recognizing that what the father cares about and loves and is doing is much bigger than you. It's kind of like the kid that his dad gives him all this stuff when he's a kid, and then, he, and then one day he wakes up and realizes that his dad all along has been the prime minister of a whole country. And he realizes he's lived in this tiny little world of his daddy and what his daddy could do for him. And then he realizes all this time his daddy has been ruling a country. Right? And that, that's what Christian faith ends up being like. We end up coming like that little kid, but at some point we recognize that the one we come to for blessing and hope and direction and insight and wisdom and all these kinds of blessings or whatever is the cosmic king of everything. And he's doing something in the world and he cares about it. He wants us to care about it. He wants to draw us into it. And the greatest fulfillment he's designed for us is to join the family business. That is the greatest blessing and the greatest route to happiness that God has designed for us is to come into a bigger world than just the little world of what can God do for me to the larger world of what could God do through me in the world in the midst of what he's doing in the world. So what I want to do this morning is I want to go through and talk a little bit about um, how the gospel takes root in people and in communities. Okay, so if you were dragged here, I apologize. Okay, this is a mostly for Christian sermon. And um, you'll just have to be an observer of that. Um, now, w- one of the things that we see in the book of Acts is that Paul wanted the world to know about Jesus. And so what he did very predictably every time he made a move is he went to a region, he found the largest city in that region, he planted a reproducing church, and then he moved on. And the whole idea was, if I plant a church in the city, the church will move out from the city to the country, not from the country to the city. That's not how it works. That's not how culture works. Culture starts in the city, it works out to the country, right? So if you want a whole area to hear the gospel, what do you do? You go to the biggest urban center or the biggest culture-forming womb of that area, and you plant the gospel there. And then the gospel will move out. If you go to to the rural towns, you go, oh, well, they're more conservative. They'll accept the gospel more easily. Let's plant churches in all the rural communities. You'll never affect the culture. It'll never happen. You'll never have the money. You'll never have the influence. You'll never reach the artists. You'll never reach the minorities. You'll never reach a cross-section. You'll never—it'll never work. And so every time Paul does—so when Paul finally looks to Asia, he looks to—now, Asia in the Bible is Turkey. Now, we go, Turkey? Who talks about Turkey? I mean, that's like— Really? Yeah, you guys, because you were missionaries there. Um, But Turkey was a big part of the Greco-Roman world. Big part of the Greco-Roman world. And it it was considered a jewel of that area of the world. And if you go right across the street to the Mediterranean restaurant in this next plaza, and you ask your waiter there to tell you about Turkey, you will hear a 35 minute dissertation on the beauty of the country of Turkey. Okay? And Ephesus was the jewel of Asia. It was, it was third in population in the entire Roman Empire, it ha- but it, ha- it had the most centralized location. It was the major shipping in and out of, for the whole continent. And it—have it, um, you heard of the seven wonders of the ancient world? Okay, one of them was the Temple of Artemis. Now you go, oh, the Temple of Artemis. Yeah, right. Okay, listen. The Temple of Artemis in the ancient world was unparalleled. Of the great—of well, the great— 
wonders of the Western world, it is arguably that the Temple of Artemis was the greatest. It took 120 years to build. Okay? It was, um, it had, a, it 120, it had 120-60-foot pillars of marble. Some are, some are still in, this is in Ephesus, some are in the Royal Museum in England. But they're, I mean, just try to imagine that. 120 60-foot pillars. Like, we couldn't, we couldn't do or afford that today. It would be like going to Washington and taking the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, the Capitol Building, and the White House, putting them all together in one big, huge thing, and then sticking the Washington Memorial on top, and you'd just sort of be getting at the grandeur and the glory of this thing in Ephesus. Which is why, when the gospel starts to take root, it turns Ephesus upside down, and there's this huge uproar because the people are like, the goddess Artemis is going to be brought into disrepute if this Christianity thing gets any more steam. Because people came from all over the Greco-Roman world to come to the Temple of Artemis. It was a city of 250,000 people, which in the, of course in the ancient world, that would be like millions today. It's one of the largest cities in the Roman Empire. And so Paul got it in his head he was going there. Because he knew that if he wanted to win Turkey, he had to win the city of Ephesus. It's the only way. Now, there's essentially four steps I want to go through real quickly because I want to come back to this whole city gig at the end um, of how the gospel takes hold. The first is, sorry, I have to skip stuff, is that the gospel takes hold in a certain number of progressive steps, and we've got to understand them for that to happen. The first is, sorry, I'm having a little trouble here, is that Paul looked for people that would receive what he had to say positively. Now, it's, listen, it's fun to debate skeptics, and I'm all for it. Like, I love a good argument. I'm Italian. I'm like Italian-British, so I've got the British logic and the Italian kind of, woo! So, I, I mean, I am like custom-built for arguing, okay? So don't, don't think that I don't like arguing, okay? I do. But one of the things that Paul looked for is he looked for people ready to listen. He looked for people who were genuinely open. He looked for people who were ready to give the gospel a positive hearing. And so he would go and he would look for those people, and he found them in Ephesus— it says in chapter 18, just before this, and when they came to Ephesus, he left them there, meaning his other followers that had, were traveling with him, and he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer time, he did not consent, but, but taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you again if God wills. And then he set sail from Ephesus. But what did he do? In the next chapter, he came right back because he knew there were people there ready to hear. And one of the things that um, we need to recognize is, is that when we're— um, there's two things. If, if you're not a Christian, here's what I would say about that, is if you just decide to have kind of an angry attitude about the gospel, you're just going to find it really unpersuasive. And it doesn't have anything to do with logic or evidence or proof or reasons. The fact is, is that how we're emotionally disposed towards something makes an enormous difference in how we listen to it. And so there's tons of people out there that think they have fantastic reasons not to believe in Jesus. There are horrible, ignorant reasons. They just are—they sound good as talking point sound bites, but they really are fostered in their soul and mind by the fact that they just don't like it. They've met Christians they don't like. They've heard things on the news about Christians they don't like. They've heard Christians talk derisively by people in the culture, and they don't want to be the object of that kind of scorn. And they just don't want anything to do with it. 
And so they're not going to listen positively for all kinds of different little reasons because they're just not, they just don't want to. And here's what I want to say. Come on. Come on. I mean, really? Be very attentive and deconstructive about your own skepticism. One of the biggest doctrines of sin that we have forgotten as the church is what the Reformed theologians call the noetic effects of the fall. That is, that, that when, when, when we fe- came into sin, it affected everything, especially our thinking patterns. So sin isn't just in our behaviors, it's in our thinking patterns. Now, we can read the Bible and look at our behaviors and go, oh, I obviously sinned. But getting behind our messed up thoughts to see how we're thinking sinfully and being confused is incredibly difficult. And if we're not openly aware that the Bible explicitly teaches these effects on our mind, we'll just think that we think completely rationally, completely objectively, completely honestly, and all these kinds of things, and sometimes we do bad things. When what Scripture teaches is that we think in nutty ways. And that leads us to negatively listen to the gospel, and we think we're just being enlightened. And Scripture intentionally deconstructs it all the way from the beginning to the end. Okay, that's too much time on that one. The second is, at some point, these people were invited to an unconditional commitment. And that is this, is to say, um, you're not done with the seeking process until you make a decision. Right? You, you can't delay choice indefinitely. Right? Um, because you can't, you, can't, you can't have something that requires commitment without the commitment. There's some things you can have without commitment, right? Like things we buy. You can be a target customer without commitment because all you're ever committing to is the item you buy, and you're not even really committing to that because you can take it back without a receipt. I am amazed at how stores—are you amazed at how stores take things—my wife bought me this coat, okay? And I wasn't there. It's my fault. I went somewhere. I wouldn't go there. It's not on her. Um, but she bought me this coat, and it had insufficient insulation for a Florida guy moving to, to Wisconsin. Okay, it's just insufficient insulation. It had like a 200-weight, like, fleece lining inside this really nice Columbia jacket, right? And so I had it for like—it was, it was around the house for like two months. And I was like, baby, I'm just not going to wear it. It's small. I can't lay underneath it. It's a nice coat. I'll wear it because we've had it. She's like, we'll take it back. I was like, it's been two months. She's like, just watch the magic, right? <laughs> so— there are benefits to being married to a Jewish girl. So we go back to the store, and she just takes no receipt, no proof we even bought it there, brings it to the guy, hands it over, and um, he's like, he's like, yeah, you got a receipt. No. Okay, well, you'll end up with sort of, you know, the lowest sale price, but that's, that's fine. Okay. He hands us a gift card for $10 more than she bought it for. Right? Because apparently she had— She'd gotten the discounts, but then she had like a $20 off the whole purchase kind of gig. So they didn't, they can't figure that. So, yeah, so I just admitted to committing fraud apparently. So, but anyway, the point is, the point is that it's amazing how, you don't even have to commit to a toaster these days, right? But that's not how the, that's not how the gospel works. And see, we have, you have not really gone through the seeking process and you have not really done evangelism until you have invited somebody to believe. Now, that doesn't mean command somebody to, like, get in right now or not respect the intellectual process that seeking takes and the emotional process that seeking takes. But you have not really done evangelism until you go, so what do you think? Have you thought about making a decision about this? 
Or for me to say to you, if you're in the seeking process, hey, you're, listen, you're just really in the process until you make a decision. Now, your decision can be no. That's a commitment. Your decision can be yes, I'd advise that one. But you're still really just shopping until you make a decision. And one of the things Paul recognized is he had to go, hey, look, listen, baptism of John's great. It's great. Baptism of John is great. But listen, there's one who came after him. And there's another baptism in the Holy Spirit that you are meant to receive. Right? Okay. Third is a fuller understanding. That is, it didn't just stop there, right? You would think if they got, if they believed, Paul laid their hands on them, they had this huge like, spiritual awakening, they're prophesying, whatever, that that would be enough. And it's not enough. Paul stayed two more years to teach them. When it didn't work out to have that teaching in the synagogue, he went to this lecture hall and lectured through the middle of the day in the heat. I mean, imagine that. Would you come to church if it was 98 degrees and like 95% humidity and seven hours long? With no childcare. <laughs> right? I mean, when I was at, I was at Lynn Haven, we tried to start a satellite campus in another town. We got a church for free. It had capacity of like 125 people. It was the perfect way to grow our church another 150 people. And we said, listen, all you got to do is just go out there for church. It's a nice church. It has heat, air conditioning. We had children's programming. We had the same bands that played at our main campus. Everything. Everything was the same. It failed miserably because there was one family who was like, dude, if you wanted to meet out in the woods, we'd meet out in the woods. We'll go anywhere. And that's it. That's it. Nobody else wanted to drive six miles so that we could increase the capacity for reaching people, 150 people, in a church of a thousand. And that's, and, and as a pastor, I found that that was, that's my problem, right? There's something, there's something related to how I'm teaching the gospel, apparently, right? But that, it was very depressing for me because I was like, ah. Oh. And then you look at these guys, and what do they, they go to the lecture hall of Tyrannus in the middle of the day for two years, and what's the effect of that? The effect of them getting saved wasn't that all of Turkey heard the gospel. The effect of that long-term discipling, mentoring, transformational ministry that really helped people say, okay, I just believed in Jesus. Now, what does me believing in Jesus have to do with my job? What does me believing in Jesus have to do with how I treat my wife or my husband? What does the fact that I believe in Jesus have to do with how I raise my children, or go to war or not go to war, or whatever was true in the ancient world or for us today. All that has to get worked out, and that takes time, and it takes an intentional process. And then the last thing is that there were confirming effects. Now, th now think about this. It said people came out publicly and confessed their sins, right? One of them was the sin of sorcery. Um, there's a bunch of stuff I'd like to say about this that I can't because all the kids are here. Um, but if you do the math, it says that they brought out this, these scrolls and burned them, and the amount came to 50,000 drachmas. Now, a drachma, if you look in the footnote of your Bible, it says a drachma is worth about a day's wage. So if you figure that at 100 bucks a day, right, in modern money, that's 5 million bucks. I mean, can you imagine that? If, like, in downtown— Madison, all the Christians were like, dude, we're done with this. And they brought like five million dollars worth of porn. They just burned it in the middle of the city. We're done. We're done with this stuff. We're Christians. We know what that means. We know what it means to live like this. And people just, just came out of the woodwork and just took stuff. They just took stuff that represented sin in their life. And it, the stuff that was worth money but wasn't fit to be sold because it was inherently sinful. And so you couldn't, 
I mean, you couldn't even, because there's always somebody like, well, you could have sold it and given the money to poor little kids. Well, no, you can't, because the thing itself is inherently sinful. So all you can do is destroy it. It's just lost money. That's it. But the effect on people was, people started coming to faith. I mean, the effect, so much that you get to the next chapter in Ephesus and there's a riot. That the very next thing that happens in Ephesus is a riot. Because the non-Christian people, the people whose, whose money is all wrapped up in the temple of Artemis, selling pagan idols, they start to feel the heat. Now think about that. It's a city of 250,000 people. Paul shows up two years earlier. There's 12. <coughs> There's 12. And in two years, there is a citywide riot. Because these Christians are having too much influence in the function of the pagan worship of the city. And they're afraid the greatest pagan temple in the world will fall into disrepute because of the cultural effect of these Christians. That is insane! And on top of that, they've reached all of Turkey. So there's churches in Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis and Troas and all over the whole nation there. There's churches planted on top of the fact that the whole city's getting turned upside down. And Paul shows up two years earlier with 12 people. I mean, we got like 400. And I got at least 12, two years in me. <laughs> and Madison's only but through a 300,000. Right? Now, there's a couple things I want to say quickly at the end. There, there are two enormous things that made the difference. And listen, you want to know my—here's my vision. You want to hear my vision? Here's the vision talk, okay? Two minutes on the vision talk. This is what it takes to transform a culture. Christians living long-term in cities and pouring out their lives sacrificially for those cities. Okay? Yes, I stole that from Tim Keller. Tim Keller stole it from Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark stole it from history. Okay? Um, the population density in the ancient world was much higher than today. For example, in the city of Antioch, um, per person per acre was 195. In Mumbai, India, 28 million people, slums as far as the eye can see, high rises, 80 stories. It's not but 183. But you see, the population density created an intermixing of people that you couldn't have segregated off communities. It was too many people, too close. People lived in common space, and so you couldn't be just a little Christian community. You had to be around everybody. Um, Rodney Stark says this in his book, Rise of Christianity. The basis for successful conversionist movements is growth through social networks through a structure of direct and interpersonal attachments. Most new religious movements fail because they quickly become closed or semi-closed networks. Remind you of any religious institutions that you know? They become closed or semi-closed networks. That is, they fail to keep forming and sustaining attachments to outsiders and thereby lose their capacity to grow. Successful movements discover techniques for remaining open networks able to reach out in new adjacent social networks. Which has led to this, which is, which actually is one of my favorite Keller quotes, but one of my brothers as well. Um, he said, Tim Keller said this, he's a pastor in um, New York City. He, he a pastors Redeemer Presbyterian. American Christians are the most anti-urban Christians in the world. As a result, American cities are the most underserved by Christians. 
it would take 10% of evangelical Christians in this country to move into cities and to, to live proportionately. Jews, for example, gay people, for example, Asian people, black and Hispanic people all live disproportionately in cities and as a result have a lot more cultural power than white evangelicals that don't want to live there because they don't want to live there and they deserve it because there they are. I remember Jim Boyce said, until evangelicals are willing to live in the city, they can stop bellyaching about what's going wrong with the culture. Right? And listen, we dislike the city for lots of reasonable reasons. It's cheaper. You can buy a bigger house. It's a more reasonable use of your money. You can save more. That's more security. In many ways, that means you could give more to your church. Living in a city is expensive, right? There are lots of influence. You, you can't, you can't, if you, if you live in a suburb, if you live in the country, you have a lot more control over the influences on your family. You lose a lot of that control when you live in the city itself. There's lots of decent reasons, not sinful reasons, why Christians, particularly white evangelicals, don't like to live in cities. But here's the thing. That will make it so that we will not transform the culture. The fact is, is that to change the culture, you have to change the city. Now, it's not just that. Um, More Christians living in cities is not going to change the culture, right? So us just living in the city of Madison, staying longer. So here's what I say. You don't have to say for— listen, we need churches everywhere there's people. If you need to move, you need to move. It's fine. But listen, if you came to Madison and you plan to stay a year, stay two years. If you, if you came to the city and you, and you plan to stay five years, stay 10, right? If you plan to stay 10, stay 20. Stay in the city. And then when it's, you go, well, we're not going to be mean. We're just going to be like, well, God bless you. Now, the, the, thing, the, the reason why the Christian church could transform the Greco-Roman world um, was not just that they lived in cities. Most of them had to live in cities. Most of the church in the first two centuries were women and slaves, Okay. Most of the church was, were women and slaves. Now, most modern, secular people go, well, that's just because, you know, slaves thought it was a nice message and, you know, religion, everybody's religion is for women. Well, that's not really how the thing went down, okay? A lot of dudes think religion is for women, so of course the church is mostly women. That's not, that's not why. The, the reason it was mostly for women is because we dudes, and even more so in Greco-Roman religion, had a great history of oppressing women. And the, the best worldview out there for women was the church. That's why. Um, I put a link up on my, on my blog that you could look at later, because I can't get into some of the stuff with the kids here as to why that is and how women were treated. But it was, it was very common in the Greco-Roman world that no matter how many kids a family had, they never raised more than one daughter. Almost no family had more than one daughter. Now, there's only certain ways that can happen. But that was the fact. There were, uh, the, the ratio was about 130 to 140 men to 100 women in the Greco-Roman world. That's with the wars that killed off lots of the men. And so because the church was anti-abortion, anti-birth control, anti-prostitution, women were like, dude, this is awesome. Because the Christians did, lived in the cities, but they didn't share the sins of the cities. They lived there in the world, but not of the world. There were ways in which they were very countercultural, and some of those countercultural things that they did drew people in who were willing to see that there was something divinely good about them. 
And so the church had many more children, including lots of women, and the women that came into church raised generation after generation of Christians, and the Christian growth rate was more than 40% in the pre-Constantinian period, right? Now, there's another bit, and that is that the Christians were willing to die to be Christians. You might think that I'm talking about the Colosseum. I'm not talking about the Colosseum. Here's what I'm talking about. Um, in, at two times in, oops, sorry, two times in the first three centuries of the church, there were major plagues in the Roman world. Major plagues. Um, it's estimated historically that the plagues wiped out between one quarter and one third of the entire population of the Roman world. I mean, think about that. One out of four people or one out of three people died. Now, the commitment of urban Christians was not to flee the plague. That God wanted us to care for people. God had called us to love our neighbor, and God had called us to not be afraid of death. So therefore, if somebody in your home or on your street or whatever got the plague, you weren't to run to the next town. You were to stay and care for them. Now, what that meant was a lot of Christians died because they stayed. But here's what, here's what they didn't know. You see, the plague wasn't a death sentence. The plague was a death sentence if you got left alone with it. But with, some, with, with conscientious nursing, it was estimated that, between, that you could cut the plague's death rate in half or by two-thirds if somebody was simply there to care for you when you had it. So the Christian's survival rate was 50% to two-thirds better than their pagan neighbors. And there was this contrast because for most of the pagans— when somebody got sick, they just left. There are quotations from the ancient world about how the pagans, they would, they would take their mother and throw her out into the street so they wouldn't get sick. Or pagans who would, they, people would get sick in their town, they'd flee to the next town, but they already had the sickness. So they took it to the next town, and then when it broke out there, they'd flee to the next town, and it spread everywhere. And so the Christians had this commitment to stay put and not only care for their own Christian relatives, but to care for their non-Christian neighbors. And so the conversion rate of the Christians in these two plagues was immense. And here's why that's important. There are some of you who really think that how nice our building looks, or how well I preach, or how cool a staff we have, or how good our lighting is, or how good our music is, or, or what our budgets can bear, or that that is really going to make a difference in how the gospel reaches Madison. It is not going to make a hill of a beans of difference in the transformational power of the gospel in Madison. It's not going to make any difference at all. None without a potency of the church of us willing to live in the city for the good of the city, even for our own sacrificial place, even to our own deaths. That's what it's going to take. And if hundreds of us live like that, then somebody like me can stand up here and go, Jesus is great, and this huge harvest will come in, and everybody will think I'm this fantastic pastor and invite me to speak at conferences. When I could be one of the most incompetent pastors in the history of the world, and that would still happen. If we lived in the city long term and poured our lives out for the good of the people of the city, and invited them to the process of a positive hearing, making a commitment, growing in transformation, and then living out these confirming effects of the gospel in the community. 
That's the vision. I stole it from Tim Keller. Tim Keller stole it from Rodney Stark. Rodney Stark stole it from history. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as a church, as we think about what we sing this morning, all the carols basically are announcing your good news of Jesus. And we want to be a church that this year, as well as any other year of the past, um, that we would be, our lives and our actions and our speech and our relationships would announce you to the world that you came to save. We pray that um, the message of the gospel would go out from us in ways that we, we, it's never happened before for us. We pray that be true of all of our neighbor churches as well. We pray that this city would see us living in it gladly and not despising it as a city. And we pray, Father, that you would give us a passion to live in a sufficiently sacrificial way in this city that people would see who you are, how great you are, and that there would be a great harvest of people coming to you. And that would be the great flywheel of the gospel, that the more would come because of the beauty that they would want to live out the beauty of the gospel in the city, and that even more would come. Help us to be as potent a church as the slaves and women of the second century were in believing your gospel. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.